We reserve the right for explicit language, but the algorithm reveals there is no such language in this episode. It's Friday, August 19th, 2022, from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And this is Word Wend, as we wend our way through language and usage. Headline, CBS News, Colorado Board of Education votes to include Nazi in Holocaust studies. Come on! I mean, I understand getting all perspectives, but do we really need a Nazi? A Nazi in there to tell kids, I don't know, the exact formulation for Zyklon B? Actually, we don't. For a news story about words, CBS expressed that news quite clumsily. Today, Colorado's Board of Education voted to make changes to how students are taught about the Holocaust. Discussion today revolved around the term Nazi. Last year, the board voted to remove the term from being used in classroom materials. When response, a number of Jewish organizations contacted the board arguing that that term is how the group was known globally. Oh, the word Nazi. That makes sense, except it doesn't. The thought was hearing the word would be harmful until Jews, wait, can I say Jews? Yes, I'm told I can say Jews. Jews told them, no, you need to go ahead and say Nazi. Headline, San Francisco Chronicle. BART police say they're no longer going to use this racist term. Here's Cron 4 with details. A change in policy for BART police. Going forward, they will no longer write reports using the term excited delirium. They cite a report which found the term to be used disproportionately in connection with law enforcement-related deaths involving people of color. Now, the problem here is twofold. One, excited delirium disproportionately is cited in the deaths of black suspects in custody. And two, maybe bigger, there may be no such thing as excited delirium. Delirium's in the DSM, but the excited part, it has no standard definition. So with this in mind, in 2009, the American College of Emergency Physicians put together a task force on excited delirium. And it found that excited delirium, quote, was a real syndrome. But since then, the term has been assailed and the statistics on when it's cited disproportionately to justify the death of black people in custody, those statistics have grown even worse. So BART, Bay Area Rapid Transit Police, are now saying they are the first who will not be using this term. I did note this one throwaway detail from the Cron 4 report. Well, BART police say the agency has no history of using the term. Well, now they won't screw up for a first time. Dateline, London, England. A new play is being mounted. EWTN News Nightly has details. The Globe Theater in London is calling a show called I, Joan, a rendition of the story of Joan of Arc with the title character using the pronouns they, them. EWTV, by the way, is the eternal word television the world's largest Catholic broadcaster, they actually have a stake in the idea that St. Joan really talked to God and really was a she. The writer of I, Joan, Charlie Josephine, explains their hopes for the production. It's going to be this big, sweaty, queer, revolution, rebellion, festival of, like, joy. Joan of Arc, using they, them. 
Sacre bleu. No, come on. It's absolutely fine. It's great. It's what literature and drama is for, to play around with these ideas. No one owns these historical figures. George Bernard Shaw used the historical Joan to make his points. In 1929, Carl Theodore Dreyer, in one of the great silent films of all time, did the same. The Legend of Billie Jean, held in Slater, 1985. Look it up. I have no problem with Joan of Arc using they, them pronouns, except... French, as a language, does not have a pronoun for they. In the third-person plural, there is the masculine ils or the feminine elles. They have been using I-E-L, which I guess they pronounce I-E-L, which is a mixture of il and elle to denote the non-binary. And if there's one part of speech that I would like people thinking about as relates to Joan of Arc, it is not the pronoun, it is the preposition. People think she's Joan from a place called Ark. Oh, wait, Joan, you're from Ark? My friend's from Ark. Do you know him? Mark? Mark from Ark? He's a nice guy, talks to God, but it's a one-way conversation. Don't know if you two would vibe. Joan is actually from the town Domre-la-Pousselle. Well, now it's Domre-la-Pousselle. La Pousselle is of the maid, as in it's named after Joan, Joan of Ark, the maid of Orléans. Maybe an I, Joan, that they then play, she's the master of Orléans. So why is she of Ark? Dark? Her dad was Ark, was of Ark. Jack Dark. Jacques Dark. Coming to you overnight. It's Jacques Dark playing all the hits. And now let's ease into the next classic rock block, starting with Jethro Tull. Here for you now, Poumon Aquatique. So Joan was the daughter of a guy who was of Ark. The guy moved to Domremy. Pre-La Pousselle. Now, if you want to find Doremi on a map, it is far south of the village Latido. So just remember, Doremi, Faso, Latido. And thus ends Word Wend, and you can't complain it until three weeks from now, because on the show today, it is an end twin tig. But first, let's talk about pleasure and its association with pain, helping us to discover the physical and mental pain we put ourselves through for pleasure is Paul Bloom, who is a professor in the Department of Psychology at the University of Toronto. He's an emeritus professor at Yale University, and he is the author of The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering, and The Search for Meaning, Paul Bloom, up next. When contemplating that very strange human dynamic of we as a species being drawn to the unpleasurable, in fact, the painful, I think we are inclined to quote the bard, John Cougar Mellencamp, recording as that, when he said, it hurts so good, sometimes love don't feel like it should till you make it hurt so good. But I think of the Australian band, The Divinals, who noted it's a fine line between pleasure and pain. You've done it once and you could do it again. Whatever you've done, don't try to explain the fine line between pleasure and pain. Well, explain he does, the he being Paul Bloom, professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and author of The Sweet Spot, The Pleasures of Suffering and The Search for Meaning, a quite meaningful book. Paul, welcome to The Gist. Good to talk to you. I know you quoted Mellencamp in the book, but I don't know if I saw the Divinals. Oh, no, I missed that one. 
I missed that one. But but <laughs> in literature and music and pop culture, the line between pleasure and pain is always comes up. Yes. Now, I think in both those songs, there is at least a strong implication that we're talking about something like BDSM. And you don't shy away from that. There's a lot in the book about the sexual parts of pleasure and pain. But primarily, that wasn't what interested you, right? So I got I got interested in for a set of puzzles. Um, you know, it's it's no puzzle as a psychologist why we like good food or good sex or good company. You know, evolutionary psychology 101, we're drawn to what's good for us, we're drawn to what makes us happy. But then there's all these puzzling activities. So BDSM is one of them. But then there's also things like, you know, eating spicy foods or taking hot baths, training for marathons. Even something like doing crossword puzzles are uh, are wordle, engaging in effort and struggle, everything from little, like, you know, you know, a minute on Wordle, that's kind of fun, all the way to running a triathlon or raising a family or taking on hard things. And so I really became interested in why we do that. Now, some of these, I think, would be less of a puzzle. Like when I think of Wordle, I think of slot machines and, you know, the denial of a reward and then the giving of a reward. It's not too far from a rat in a maze, except where the rats in the maze are letters. But with some of them, yeah, it is something to ponder, isn't it? It is. I mean, your 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 quick theory of Wordle might actually apply for a lot of unpleasant things, where a lot of unpleasant things we engage in because there's a payoff at the end that makes it worth it. So, you know, one theory for why some people, not everybody, we could talk about the differences, like really hot foods, is you put the hot food in your mouth, it burns, then you drink some cool beer and you feel so good. And you wouldn't get that goodness without um, without the initial pain. I was once in a Finnish sauna and it's, a, you know, roasting my innards. And then you dive into a cool lake and it is paradise. And you can't get that sort of pleasure unless it's preceded by pain. Right. So that is more of a logical and physiological effect. A lot of what you write about is psychological. So the physiological effect, um, let's take marathon training, which I've never done, but you've done. You've also done some sort of uh, mixed martial arts, though, as you point out, not at a very high level. Not, not but, good at it. <laughs> <laughs> more receiving end than anything else. Yeah, exactly. Right. So I definitely understand you train for a reward and then you see your body transforming or this goal that was, you know, a set amount of miles and you can do it. So even if during the process, your body wasn't feeling different, not just emotions, but actual the release of endorphins, uh, you could make the case. It wouldn't be so um implausible or hard to explain why someone might enjoy putting in hard work for a reward at the end. It's the reward at the end part of it. But then a bunch of the portions of pleasure, you know, what is, it's less clear what the reward at the end is, like with something like self-harm. You know, it, when I started to write this book, I was going to call it The Pleasure of Suffering. And it was all about the reward at the end, whatever the reward might be. And sometimes it's sort of, a, a sort of a, just a kick of pleasure. Sometimes it's satisfaction of a job well done. Sometimes it's impressing people. But as I started to think about this, I ended up, you know, kind of pushing away from the idea that we're after pleasure in the first place. And so, you know, to the extent this book has a broad theme, it uses these curious uh, aspects of human behavior to make a claim for, for what's been called motivational pluralism. And the idea here is one thing we want in life is pleasure. And, you know, I know people who deny that. I think it's crazy to deny that. There's nothing like a, a cool drink on a hot day, you know, scratching when it itches. That's great. But we also want other things. We, um, we want meaning, whatever that is. We want to be good people. We might want transcendence. And a lot of the way, one of the 
big reasons we put ourselves through struggle and pain and difficulty is as a root for these other things. They don't in the end really hurt so good, but, but they have value in other ways. Right. And there's a connection, you know, through across society and across cultures between uh, suffering and transcendence, right? That's why so many religious traditions include actual, you know, physical suffering, whipping, self-flagellation, or, you know, not just an endorsement of the idea of stigmata, but actually, you know, puncturing one's own skin to show one's faith. Um, and I think that that becomes we in the we in the advanced world, maybe Western world, maybe atheistic world, looks down on that a little. But aren't we in fact doing the exact same things in our Peloton esque type way? I think we are. I think any every religion. So you're talking about the heavy duty stuff, you know, um, people getting themselves crucified and whipping themselves and so on. And religions are full of that. But even your most sort of mild, everyday, you know, Islam, Christianity, Judaism involves depriving yourselves of food you might like to eat, fasting at certain times, uh, giving up certain pleasures, praying at inconvenient times, and, and doing a lot of boring and difficult stuff. And I don't think this is some sort of mistake that religions are, are making. It's part and parcel of it. We, we connect the striving for meaning um, with struggle. And so when, you know, a, a, you know a, an, an annoying atheist like me says, you know, I don't believe any of this religion crap, still, I then try to try to scratch the ditch in other ways. I try to work out. I, I watch what I eat. I set up a timer for when I'm writing. I'm doing all this stuff. And through this sort of struggle and discipline, something real value arises. Without it, it life would be a mess. When we engage in these things, what are we trying to transcend? Uh, you can have different words for it, but meaninglessness, you know, could be ennui, boredom, um, whatever those emotions are. Meaninglessness is a pretty decent catch-all word. And therefore, by putting us in either the state of physical pain or flow, which you and other writers have talked about, it's a way to go beyond meaninglessness and therefore uh, attain something meaningful. I think, by the way, this might be more um, dictated by the idea of chemicals in our brains and us as creatures just being subject to dopamine and adrenaline than it is something that lies deeper within the you know higher portions of our cerebellum. I think we do try to escape meaninglessness, you know, ennui, boredom, and we seek all different ways to do it. I'm not sure I would I would draw the sort of contrast you're making between neurochemicals, maybe dopamine, maybe serotonin, whatever, and and a deeper motivation, a deeper drive of Venice. I think we do have a deeper drive of Venice. And because we're chemical creatures, it's manifested in this way. It's not, it's not, you don't have to sort of choose. You can go for a neurochemical, neurobiological explanation that's fully consistent with something. This is what we evolved to do. This is what we choose to do. This is how our, our culture works it. As I read your book, I'm thinking of one thing I always think about, which is stories, and I'm channeling Yuval Harari, and I don't know which way the causal arrow goes, but he says, and I agree, that stories make life meaningful. By using stories, we make meaning of the world, and of course, stories have to have conflict. Without conflict, they're not stories, and therefore, we're not meaningful. That seems to me to map directly on to the physical sensations that you're talking about. The question is, do you think, I mean, maybe this is beyond the realm of the psychologist and philosopher that you are, but do you think that the reason that uh, painfulness is so attractive is because it's a kind of story? Or do you think that we tell ourselves these stories because we know in our physical lives that there is some sort of pleasure and pain? I, I think 
both. I think I talk about stories in my book going back to religion, where what religion often does, and maybe this is a primary thing religion does, is tell good stories about the pain you're having, the pain you didn't choose. In the end, you'll be rewarded with heaven. You're, you're, you're reliving the suffering of Christ on the cross. You're, you're, you're doing good. The meek shall inherit earth. It's all worthwhile, and those are good stories. But then there's another level which you're getting at, which is I'm also interested in why we like stories and why we like um, we like sad stories and difficult stories and stories where there's conflict. In fact, there's no conflict. There's no story. Um, and I think part of it is because these are the sorts of things we strive for in real life. So just as we like to struggle and try to achieve something difficult and meaningful, we like to watch movies and read books where people do that. And to some extent, then, stories mirror um, what we find interesting in our own life, what we find valuable in our own life. You want to you find out what, pe- what humans, what people find important. Look at the stories we like the most. So you also talk about, even though um, we've been talking about the kinds of uh, suffering that people find pleasure in, there are whole categories of suffering where that's not the case. No one seeks out nausea, for instance. No one seeks out boredom. Um, no one liked Chevy Chase's talk show. There are just certain kinds of suffering, but um, bum. Yeah. But there are certain kinds of suffering that no one goes for. What insight can be gleaned from that? It's kind of a first thing. There's exceptions to everything. There aren't people who claim to sort of get something out of boredom, if only to signal. Look at look at look kind of person I am. You know, you're you're reading Stephen King, but I'm here. You know, reading the prime number tables. But don't you think that that's some sort of bragging of, look how comfortable I am in the silence? <laughs> it may be. It may be. But a lot of our unpleasant desires ultimately reduce to sort of bragging rights where, you know, you know, the, the, the guy who's jamming hot peppers in his mouth is typically surrounded by his friends. And it's typically a guy. Right. Imagine doing that. Imagine just buying that extremely hot pepper, going home, eating it, and not telling anyone. I've always said the entire bungee jumping industry would cease to exist if you could never tell anyone about it. That's right. Who would bungee <laughs> jump alone? Just, you know. But but is and then there's sort of focus reasons. So nausea is a very interesting case. Um, and and I think I have a story for why. So a friend of mine, uh, uh, Dan Gilbert at Harvard, had a had an experiment where he got people to electrically shock themselves. And one of the findings that didn't kind of make the way into papers, people like, particularly young undergraduate, if I say I have an electric shock machine, people will line up to give themselves a jolt. But what if I wanted to give you a pill that would make you nauseous? People say, hell no. And I think part of the answer goes back to what we were talking about before. You can't shut off nausea. Nausea is unlike just about anything where it lingers. There's no sense of feeling deeply nauseous and poof, it's gone. As if you're releasing your hand from a hot stove or something. Nausea lingers. And nausea also might have some sort of special evolutionary stuff going on with it, which is you've been poisoned. You know, better, better get out of the situation. Mm-hmm. But I think yeah. in, in the end, a problem with nausea is lack, lack of control. You are an atheist, I think a somewhat famous atheist, but not obnoxious about it. That's a big part of your atheism. (laughs) Just just wait. So often you quote C.S. Lewis, you talk, you quote other people who are motivated by a religious impulse. If we were to strip the religiosity of these thinkers, wouldn't at least in this book, the texts and insight you were able to draw upon, wouldn't they be less rich? 
What, what I'd be tempted to say is, well, of course I quote religious people. Most people are religious, including the smartest people in the world, most insightful people. But you're saying whether it's because of the religion? And I think, yeah. Well, I, I, think, I, I think I can't read, see, knowing what I know about C.S. Lewis, it's yeah. just shot through with his right, religiosity, right. his insight. And it's it's some of the best writing and insight we've ever known. Be strange to read as C.S. Lewis had no interest in, in, in religion or God or anything like, like that. Um, I think you're right. I think I don't. I don't agree with many of the factual claims about religion. That's what it is to be to be an atheist. But I would not deny that there are huge insights, both in religious thought, like the Talmud and the Bible and the Quran. You know, you, you could find stuff of tremendous value there. But also in the religious mode of thought, which at its best in uh, Talmudic thinking, in, in, in the work of the Jesuits, models a sort of focus and concentration and, and broad interest that's... Um, that's, I think, something worth imitating. And I guess what I say, whatever qualms I have of religious thinkers, I think they pay people and the mind the proper respect. What I mean is I have a lot of colleagues say, ah, it's just, it's just low-level learning. It's just neural nets. It's statistics and everything. And you talk to somebody who's steeped, say, in the Catholic tradition, and they say, you are underestimating what people are made of and how people work. And so I think there's, I think so to answer your question is, yeah. I think because of their religion, they have a lot to offer. Yeah. And I guess a different explanation would be like, well, no, if we went back and religion didn't take hold, which would be weird knowing our species, or all the great thinkers were uh, were agnostic or atheist, these same great brains would have some different non-religious, non-God-oriented tradition to hold on to. And maybe we'd invent different institutions which encourage these very rigorous habits of mind but I don't know, I, you know, it's, yeah, not only because it hasn't happened, there's plenty of irreligiosity throughout the world now, and I don't see those equivalent institutions being built. There's a question. So a lot of people have said, oh, let's jettison all the bad things about religion, like, and there's a fair amount of bad things, including the, 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 the sort of mistakes about the world, but let's keep all the good stuff. Sure. I say the same thing about ch my children. And <laughs> it's not clear with either your children or, or religion in general that this is possible. It, it's, not, it's not clear, clear that, that you, can, you can set up an institution that's, that does all the good stuff and, and doesn't have the bad stuff. Just as you can't take away pain from what is pleasure. Ah, nice, nice, uh, nice bring it back. Paul Bloom is professor of psychology at the University of Toronto and emeritus professor of the same at Yale. He's the youngest emeritus professor I've ever heard of. He is the author of The Sweet Spot, The Pleasure of Suffering and The Search for Meaning. Thank you so much. Thanks, Mike. This was tons of fun. And now the spiel, it's an n twentig, a three-week period wherein we correct mistakes and answer listener comments. For a full catalog of all n twentigs, write n twentig, Pueblo, Colorado, 81009. First off, I want to start with what I do correct and what I don't correct in this space. If I mispronounce something, generally, I will write back to the person who corrected me and acknowledge that I got it wrong, but it will not be necessary for me to correct every time I said something wrong. Want to know why? I often say something wrong. Did I say historic instead of historical? Only history can judge me. Did I say antediluvian or antediluvian or antediluvian? Maybe I swallowed a duh when speaking of Madagascar. Did I say antananananarivo or Antananarivo, it's hard to say. 
But if I do get a proper name wrong, just like the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, I am more prone to correct. So I believe I spoke of Rhea Seahorn. The actress's name is Ray Seahorn. I should know this. I had her on the show. As to the question of why she is not named Rhea, we'd have to ask the people who named her. Uh, we'd have to ask her dad. I can't get into his head. I can't establish a man's men's Rhea for a woman named Rhea. You know what I'm saying, even though it's only Ray. Mostly in this, today's N20g, I would like to concentrate on the Reddit page. The Reddit page is a robust community, though a small one, and I have been enjoying everyone's feedback. Our producer, Corey Wara, put in a poll based on what we might offer in terms of a subscription service or an ad-free service, and I got a lot of feedback, and we're using that feedback to go forward. But some comments that showed up in Reddit that I can address here. Hey, Mike. I was listening to Jordan Harbinger's interview with Malcolm Gladwell uh, immediately with the name dropping. And they discussed the title of Gladwell's books. I didn't hear that interview. I listened to a lot of Jordan's interviews. I would imagine that for Gladwell, he doesn't, you know, pour over it too much. It would be odd if Blink was the result of 10,000 hours of research. Anyway, talked about the naming of podcast. So Tuva Vader wonders, how do you get the name The Gist? And then someone else a little later on said, well, early on, Slate had a lot of titles named that or like that, just pithy little titles. That's exactly how I got it. Jacob Weisberg, who was then editor-in-chief and brought me on to that organization, said, well, we always had one floating around that we once used that we didn't. How about the gist? The gist is great. It's punchy. It promises a lot. Only problem with the gist, I don't know if you ever heard this show. This show is kind of discursive. There are a lot of tangents. If you were to say, what's the gist of it? You normally wouldn't get a spiel and twintig or the kind of segments we offer. So it might run afoul of truth and labeling laws, but it is quite punchy. Redditor Always Blue, B-L-O-O, writes in, I have recently noticed an influx of Lubbock references in the gist of late. Not just this episode today, which was about Lubbock Station KBLK. I believe that was about Walrus Freya, the late walrus, covered in the West Texas media. But recently you cited a headline from the Avalanche Journal, which is the local print newspaper. And this got him to thinking, why Lubbock? Are you obsessed with Lubbock? Are you a closeted Buddy Holly fan? Yeah, That'll be the day. Um, do you have a beloved auntie who lives there somehow? No, no. And in fact, this might be a little bit of the Bader-Meinhof effect, which is that psychological phenomenon, whereas you've never heard of the Bader-Meinhof gang until I mention it, and now you'll be hearing a lot of the Bader-Meinhof gang. From what I understood, they were East Germans who attacked Lubbock, maybe getting that wrong. No, it just so happened that I mentioned Lubbock twice, and it's a total coincidence. But Always Blue goes on to ask, does Mike sample news feeds from various U.S. markets to take a pulse on the zeitgeist of flyover country? Indeed, I do. I sit here feeling very guilty that my media consumption of the newspapers that come to my door, the Daily News, the New York Times, and the Wall Street Journal, the three or four I subscribe to, the San Francisco Chronicle, the LA Times, and the Chicago Tribune, though I dropped the Tribune, it's gotten terrible lately. And I don't subscribe to the KC Star, and I don't subscribe to 
any of the major Missoula papers. And I feel bad about it because it's not that I won't be, I won't get information that's news of the weird or news of the wacky services like FARC put this together. But there's always some story buried on A7 that's a whoa, whoa, whoa. And I wouldn't have known about it. And I don't know about it until it hits the local paper. So if you are reading your version of the, of the avalanche, or if you are reading your version of the Sacramento or Modesto Bee, any of the bees, let me know if there's a local story that is of weirdness or has a central character that seems really to be a character or that hasn't been picked up. But if it were, it, was this, it would be the sort of thing that you would say, yeah, I get it. Now everyone's talking about it. Not only do I feel guilty, I think those are some of the best stories out there. And I know of no other way to get them because if you wait for the filter, usually it's either someone trawling for the news of the weird or a local story that inevitably blows up because the stakes are too high. I want something right in between. And I love those stories. So this one's from Ellis Michael, who writes in uh, via email. Actually, he writes in via the uh, MikePesca.com site, where I get email also. On Friday's show, Ellis writes in, you made reference to Foucault's last theorem. I believe you meant to say was Fermat's last theorem, or maybe, for, yeah, Fermat's, I think you would say. I don't know. Maybe I'm saying it wrong. Maybe I'm drunk. Maybe it's the Fermatation. And he says Fermat's last theorem was proved by Andrew Wiles or Willies, Andy Willies in the 1990s. Anyway... Ellis, Michael, looked it up, and there is no Foucault's last theorem. Why would a philosopher of his ilk come up with theorems? That makes sense. There were several links to Foucault's last conundrum, which was a plot point in an episode of Phil of the Future. Did you just out yourself as a former watcher of Phil of the Future? Need a boy named Phil and his family On vacation from the 22nd century Got a rented time machine and they're on their way now, in this case, whenever someone gets excited and maybe we share a little bit of culture, I want to say yes. And not in the I want to say, as the kids say today, well, the capital of Oregon, I want to say Portland, but it's almost as if part of me wants to say Salem. No, I really want to say it. It's just not true. I did not watch Phil of the Future. Now, if you had asked me, a guy who really likes Star Wars, if one day, and was starved for sci-fi content, if one day there'd be so much of it, such a deluge of it, that I'd get sick of it, then I would have said in the past that I will have had my fill of the future. But no, I, I don't watch fill of the future. David Balkin writes in to give me a nice compliment. He enjoyed the fact that I played a snippet of... The Filipino boxer Manny Pacquiao singing Sometimes When We Touch. I have to say that song has been haunting me ever since, not because of his lovely rendition, but it somehow defaulted to be the next up in my iTunes. So whenever I would play a clip from the show, it would end. And then there'd be Manny Pacquiao saying Sometimes When We Touch. And the reason that David Balkin liked my playing Sometimes When We Touch, he says, it's nice to hear a fellow Torontonian Dan Hills, sometimes when we touch, even if it was a cover. And I replied to him, yes, I hope to someday secure a copy of Imelda Marco singing Backman Turner Overdrive in my Filipino Sing Canadian series. But I screwed up. And I'll tell you why I screwed up. I screwed up because the right reference was Bruno Mars covering Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Because that almost happened. Remember Uptown Funk? 
Hallelujah. I think that was Leonard Cohen influenced. Oh, you need to know Bruno Mars is of Filipino heritage. So I can't really literally play you that. I could do the next best thing. I will take Mark Ronson's Uptown Funk and I will apply a theory that I, I, I laid on you guys, my the gist listeners, on episode eight. And I do remember this is one of my great theories in life uh, that I held dear and close in 2014. And I remember worrying, well, if I put this out there now, will I have enough interesting things to say? I, I have to say I forgot this theory until now. And my theory is that every single song in the world can, you could take the lyrics and you can apply the melody of Gordon Lightfoot's The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald to that song. And so, now this is a high degree of difficulty, but I will use Mark Ronson, he's not the important one here, but Bruno Mars singing Uptown Funk to Edmund Fitzgerald, if we can get a little of the Edmund Fitzgerald song. So that we remember how it goes. That ice-cold Michelle Pfeiffer That white gold is one for them good girls Them good girls, straight masterpieces Styling and wiling Living it up in the city Got chucks on with Saint Laurent Gonna kiss myself so pretty it's not my singing that's the important point. It's that the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald is the most versatile melody in the world. God bless you, Gordon Lightfoot. And finally, we come to the part of the N Twin Tig, our three-week period of recrimination and regret, where I name the best contributor to the discourse. I'm trying to use that word less. Or actually, I'm trying to read that word less. We're defaulting to it way too much. Actually, I have a list of all these words that I want to stop using or that I'm getting a little sick of. You know, he gestured at, it was performative. The list is growing so long, it's really hemming in my ability to talk, think, or speak. Anyway, this person is the listener or interacterer who deserves praise the most because they did the most to raise and elevate the conversation we've all been having. And sometimes this is just a theoretical designation, but today it couldn't be more true. As I named the Lobstar of the end, Twen Tig, someone whose real name I don't even know, he is Reddit user Deacon Core, and he is the one who set up our Reddit group. One day I said to Corey, Corey, by the way, thanks for setting up that Reddit group. He said, no, I don't set it up. A guy named Deacon Core set it up. I've not found out a lot about Deacon Core. He likes my podcast, a couple other podcasts. I think he's from Cleveland. He turned me on to a local Cleveland show that ain't bad. He loves the Guardians. Most people from Cleveland who love the Guardians are decent sorts. And anyone who set up a Reddit page is more than decent. You, Deacon Core, you are the lobstar of this, the Antwentig. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara produces The Gist. Joel Patterson is The Gist's senior producer. The COO of Peachfish Productions is Michelle Pesca, who takes pleasure in watching the pain of other people pop their zits, but not lance their boils. I wonder what the line is. 
The gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oom um, poo, 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 and thanks for listening.